the one impact would maybe be equipping people with the knowledge and with the with the resources of understanding aviation and military aviation. So this is, on the one hand side, my videos provide this as a service, giving people information there and then also providing that as a sort of a catalyst. Because if I think back of in my youth, if there wasn't that neighbor who had books on aircraft, who took me flying, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Hi, I'm Jenny, CEO of Digital Voices, and I am joined for our creative podcast this fortnight with a very, very wonderful person who we've had the privilege to work with before. Um, he, you might know him by the name Bismarck, <laughs> but this is Chris from Military Aviation History. Do you want to? introduce yourself yeah sure yeah so i'm chris um on my youtube channel i know as bismarck and i animate the channel military aviation history and basically what i do is i go and work with museums um look at aircraft explain everybody how they work get inside show the outside um and then i also go to archives do historical research on operations involving aircraft since yeah 1914 1916 all the way into 21st century so that's basically it so at the end of the podcast uh we are going to have chris sign a camera that he has selected a vintage camera and he will give it away comment below and say your favorite thing chris has said about his personal life or podcast oh god (laughs) (laughs) so um when did you start military aviation history 2016 that's when sort of the historical pitch of my channel started. Yeah, and what what motivated you to do it? Sort of genuine interest. So I was very much into aviation, um, just, you know, from, a, from when I was about eight or nine years old. And obviously during your teenage years, you develop other interests and it wasn't exactly cool in school to, to be the guy who knew about, I don't know, Spitfires and... 109s and other topics of discussion had to be brought to the table so I changed my interests to what um, I did a lot of sports um, so I you know I did a lot obviously football soccer for you Americans um, and then I discovered rugby and that took a huge chunk of my life and then I got into university of course and um, after that yeah sort of I rediscovered my old passion and that's where everything happened. Did you keep reading about it secretly while you were being like a cool jock? <laughs> I don't think I was ever <laughs> able to qualify as a cool jock, but um, not yes and no. So I, 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 whenever something fell into my hands, I was like, yeah, I'll read this. Um, and obviously also in, in school, I was uh, very much into history. Um, and obviously then also at university I, I sort of studied history well not sort of studied I studied history um, and, and, and passed with a degree out of there um, but these sort of rediscovering aviation as, as a primary focus and a topic that came yeah around 2015-2016 so I've been playing with the idea for some time before that of doing something maybe with aviation related uh, 
But until I finally took that plunge and really shifted everything towards the YouTube channel, um, that took maybe longer than it should have. But that's, you know, what happens. Yeah, ten, everything takes 10 times longer than you imagine. So, okay, so you grew up in Germany and Belgium. Sort of, yes. Alternating. So how did you get into military aviation history? Did you have family who were involved in the military? Um, or? No. So obviously coming out of a German family, um, there was one rule and that was don't mention the war, um, which was kept uh, quite um, sternly, that rule, um, which sort of increased my interest maybe a bit. You know, I, I did want to know about the thing that I was not supposed to, to um, talk about. Um, one thing I remember is the movie Battle of Britain came on TV once and I really, really wanted to watch it. And I was only about allowed to watch about the first hour or something. This was when I was like 12 or 13, right? Um, but the reason also why I think why I was supposed only supposed to watch one hour is because, you know, there's violence and so on. And my parents were, didn't really feel comfortable with that uh, being, you know, on my peripheral. Um, I wasn't allowed to watch Star Wars either, so there we go. You weren't allowed to watch Star Wars. I hope my parents don't see this. Um, <laughs> no, but um, the the interest sort of did develop there. We had a neighbor who's a good friend of the family as well. He was a pilot, um, and he had flight simulators. Yeah. And so I got into flight simulators uh, when I was already eight or nine, and he took me flying sometimes. Um, and yeah, that's where it developed sort of and then yeah it just kept as i said in the background um always festering away with that idea do something about aviation and eventually it happened it's really funny that you had this like illicit like passion for aviation you weren't allowed to like read history books about um, it or were you the the question was always not of you know you, you you were not supposed to talk or read about it it was just like why that there's so much history. Um, why don't you read something about the Romans, or why don't you do something about the Industrial Revolution? Um, so there was never a sort of a, a real forbidden element in it, where where really uh, somebody took something out of my hands, and you know you're not allowed to do this. But you know once you reach adulthood, you just do what you want anyway. So I didn't realize you were such a rebel. I've seen you as quite unrebellious, but until the spray paint got in your hand, I didn't know you were a rebel. Um, what did you grow up wanting to do then? What did your parents want you to do? Oh, my parents were, you know, you can do anything. Okay. Do what do what you want. Um, there, there were no restrictions or they were always supportive about, you know, where I wanted to go. So when I decided to study in the UK, um, you know, going up to Scotland there for my, uh, for my undergrad, they were supportive of that. Um, the topic as well. So I did um, a joint degree in international relations and history. Uh, yeah, that was fine. Then I did another master's after that. You know, there was never any sort of restriction of, no, you should do something um, that you know, honors the family name or something like that. Um, they were very open and supportive every step of the road. Of course, once I explained to them, um, this was actually a nervous thing a little bit. I mean, this was me in my mid-20s being a little bit nervous about telling my parents that my job now consists of uploading videos <laughs> involving military aviation um, but I explained it and they were immediately, wow. So they were actually quite surprised and, and supportive, really, that I had sort of built up something by myself. 
how long had you been running the channel before you told them that it was like your job? Did you do it secretly for a while? Or? No, it wasn't secret. Um, it, it was just that the topic never emerged to talk about. So I had different jobs. I was uh, I was working in France at the time, and I did sort of the channel at the side. And um, then I came here to London, and then I think that was the point in time when I told them, um, because it was also sort of a thing of saying, look, this is what I'm doing now. Uh, but there was never sort of this element of let's have a secret here. They're not supposed to know. It just happened that way because we didn't have that conversation. Do you think that's partly just because you were living apart from them? Because you've lived, you've lived all across Europe, mm-hmm. which I think probably informs your understanding a little bit. You, you're very capable of telling stories that translate... I mean, you've worked for the RAF, you've talked about Luftwaffe, like you've talked about a lot of countries' military history without annoying too many people, (laughs) which is a skill. (laughs) I mean, I had the fortune of of going to school in an international school. So from the age of, must have been like 12, I was having classes with people from the US, from the Netherlands, from France, from, from everywhere. And you get to know every single stereotype there is and you become immune to insults that involve stereotypes, which is very fun. Um, but at the same time, you also understand how different cultures or societies see the same event in a different light. And then you also learn sort of an understanding of how you can talk to them about a significant historical event that happened um, in, for their nation or in their time without sort of, you know, offending anybody so so yeah it, it does it did help sort of that that background and then getting getting understanding or sort of an appreciation of the different interpretations that exist of same events and how you can even even though there are difference the perspectives might be vastly different that you can still find common ground yeah because one of the things the things i think you're really good at is is explaining context and like being you're very um I think it's it's because you're such an academic sometimes such an academic <laughs> such an academic that it makes you um you put so much effort into your research that it makes you quite easy to understand I think it is it is difficult because the more you read the more you understand how little you know and the more you understand how much context there actually is, even for a certain very mundane events. And that, that is a big focus when I write my scripts of trying to condense something down to the bare essence, still keep the wider context and make people understand why did something happen a certain way. Because if you don't have those three things, sort of, you know, basically the context, the wider uh, wider realm in which a decision was taken and then obviously also the outcome you're never really going to understand why something happened in the first place yeah and there's a lot of controversy often in like historical terms as well <laughs> how do you deal with that controversy I, it, mostly it comes down to sort of popular myths yeah sort of i had a conversation with a historian recently about the bad dam buster raid and we essentially, or what she said is that in Britain, there is sort of the holy trinity of World War II memory, which is the Battle of Britain, Dunkirk, and then the Dambuster Raid. And obviously around 
this holy trinity there's a lot of stories a lot of myths and everything of that has a foundation in fact or historical fact um, and and what happened but it, it sort of spun from there so once you start reading about these events you sort of unravel how these stories came to be and why certain myths proliferated and once you understand how they came to be you can then understand how to tackle them and it's not essentially done by just telling people they're stupid in believing them but rather just expanding the context and giving them the tools then to realize and sort of get the wheels turning a little bit even if that sounds very arrogant um, of realizing okay there is more to the story than i previously anticipated and this also happens to me every time i read something about a story that i think i know well and i pick up another book about it and i'm just like oh okay and oh and that actually then leads into that and i hadn't considered that element yet and now i can link it to this as well and you sort of you know you build yourself up a canvas uh, sort of like i don't want to say like a detective but you you sort of start making links the more you read uh, about very mundane uh, historical uh, yeah, events and it suddenly becomes very interesting so how do you um decide on your video topics because i i've noticed you read all the time and that like there is a huge wealth of information out there and i can tell you're very set on myth busting you're very set on making sure people know what actually happened even though it's always subjective like yeah. so how do you choose well the myth busting sort of i wouldn't say it's the primary focus but it happens consistently due to the fact that there's there are so many myths out there so if i would make a video about pearl harbor automatically there's going to be things that in the popular memory or popular you know, narrative are yeah are not going to fully gel with my video because i'm gonna be sitting there and actually you know the japanese did not have a um, success rate of 90% on their torpedoes actually was closer to 56 and you can read Al Zim's book on this and, and so on and so forth um, but beyond that how I choose my topic very much depends well on a couple of things obviously it always helps if there's a big historical event coming up so now there's obviously the 75th anniversary of D-Day so I'm doing something on the Dakota the C-47 Skytrain the plane that dropped all the paratroopers so that helps um, to choose a topic. And then there's also other things when I just open a book sometimes and I see that's a topic right there. That's what I have to do. And then something I actually have on some of my patrons can choose topics. And provided I have enough information, I'll do them. And those are sometimes very interesting ideas as well. And sort of videos where I did, that I didn't think about myself. And I'm like, actually, that's a really, really good idea. Um, and I'm gonna research that, and I, I and from researching that, I find out new things, um, which happened again recently when a video I'm sort of working on right now, on an aircraft that was developed in the 1930s, and that led me to discover a whole array of tests that the U.S. Navy did on, and how to incorporate aviation in their, in their uh, maneuvers which then fundamentally fell flat on their face during the Second World War. It never was used, but they had continuously tested things. I'm like, that's another topic where I'm going to make a video about. So it, every time I start working on something, there's just a chain that gets in motion. And it's, it's like a tree in a sense where topic ideas just sprout out. And then I think about them 
and 24 hours later I might just discount some of them but I'm like okay this is not gonna work or not yet and uh, some of these ideas stick around so I have another idea that which you actually know because this is how we met um, which I'm not gonna reveal just yet because I really do want to make that video it's interesting because um, one of the things that really surprised me about you when we met was that I assumed you would be because you're doing a PhD you want to be an academic potentially 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 you know the world is broad and life is long but be an academic and it surprised me that your PhD is not in military aviation history yeah. it's in international relations and very current it surprises me as well <laughs> to be honest um yeah that happened and it's still going on was it a purposeful choice to keep both interests separate yeah um, so obviously, like I said, I did an undergraduate and that was a joint degree. Part of that was international relations. Then my um, graduate degree was also in international relations. Well, it's called international cooperation, but it was international relations um, universities. And then, yeah, I, I sort of had this passion of, of sharing my interest in aviation on YouTube. But then I was also, where is that going to lead me? I'm not quite sure yet. And at the same time, I was like, I really want to do something on current events, um, Germany, foreign policy. So I'm going to do that as well. And for me mentally, I think, and we had this chat before as well once, it's good to be busy. And it's good to have consistent deadlines and consistent things to work on. And once, when I work on the channel, you know, I can dedicate that time to the channel and then I have the other hours where I do something on the PhD and so everything stays a little bit fresh and that really helps me sort of have a clear focus on, on the issues without it becoming overwhelming because I mean, YouTube is, is quite stressful even if it sounds like a, like a dream job um, and the same thing goes for, for a PhD. I mean, it's not just sitting around reading books. Um, that's a big part of it. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a lot of writing and it's a lot of thinking. And um, sometimes there are days where you just want to throw your laptop out of the window because nothing lines up. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's fun in the end of the day, at the end of the day. So I think there are two interesting, well, there are lots of interesting bits here, but two main bits. One, doing a PhD, you focus on one topic basically, right? For three years? Pretty much. Whereas with YouTube, you can find this interesting tree of ideas and end up... Um, following bits and dropping them and listening to your community and then following one idea or dropping yeah. another one. Whereas you can't really do that so much with your PhD. It's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah. Do you feel like the freedom of having the opportunity to drop things on YouTube helps you think better? It allows me to be a little bit more flexible. It allows me to play with more ideas. Uh, but at the same time, that freedom can be restricting because in the end of the day, you have to present a product and you have to show something. With a PhD, even though I shouldn't be saying this, but if you, let's say, waste two or three weeks, it's not a big deal because you can catch those up again. And sometimes you also have to take two or three weeks just like anybody who's doing a job, a PhD is essentially a job as well. And sometimes you have to take a break from it. Whereas if you take a break from YouTube, two or three weeks, that can put your whole schedule for the next months at least for me with my uploading schedule in this array if you if you if you're focusing on weekly uploads and you have maybe a back catalog which you can just put on online if you've worked in advance that's fine and i have a back catalog now as well 
but I wouldn't take two or three weeks break from, from YouTube just because I know I'm going to have a hard time catching up again. So drilling down the topics for a video has to be happen quite fast, has to be very focused as well. And there's sort of this creative stage where you think about all the different things you could do. But once you know you have a topic, that's where you really sort of button down the hatches and you write your script, you start animating, you start recording and you do the job. And your scripts, I can say this, having seen quite a few YouTube creator scripts, I had never seen anything like yours. Your <laughs> scripts are... <laughs> I, I came from an academic background, like I did a master's and nearly did a PhD and, you know, I... I was told off for footnoting too much. Everyone else who has seen your scripts is just really scared. Like they love it. You put so much work in there. And I think that's something that um, a lot of people don't appreciate goes into your work, but it's, it's very dense and it's very carefully considered and researched. The, so my community knows this and, and, and they do value it, I think. The... Yeah, there is a lot of footnotes. There are a lot of sources. So in, in, in the video that I did on the C47, uh, I went to the archive. I found files there for it. I went to, obviously, um, a library archive as well. I have my own books on that. And I think the reference, reference list is about... It's quite long. <laughs> it's quite long. Um, and that's just on one plane. And that's literally just the development of one plane. And that's pretty clear cut but I think that's also necessary if we talk about historical events because the information should be clear the information should be good and the audience should also know where that information comes from so I wouldn't say with, with history on YouTube this is this is a big part of what I'm trying to push as well and there's other YouTubers that are as well I'm not the first one to do this but citing sources is I think something that should be done more consistently on the whole on YouTube. So in my videos in the description box, you always find the, the sources. And what I'm also starting to do is in the subtitles. So when I say something, I actually note with brackets now, this is where it comes from. If it's a sort of a specific quote or something. So people know, okay, this is, you know, this, this person said this and this person said that. And this is, I think, very important. It also shows you know, that you're open and transparent with your audience. This is where the information comes from. And if in the end of the day, if something is wrong, you can clearly address it and you can say, right, you know, I read this in this book and I found out actually that other academics have looked at it as well. And this seems to be outdated. So let's have a discussion on it. How that happened? Is this because new files were discovered in the archives? Is this because the historiography sort of changed and started um, taking on board more accounts, more oral history, maybe more um, yeah, primary sources that certainly appeared? And you can have a fair discussion about it. But if you don't show your sources, if you sort of hide behind your YouTuber status, then, yeah, I, I think that especially if you're doing history, you sort of, I wouldn't say a disservice, but maybe consider citing information. Where does the passion to be truthful in terms of the way you tell historical stories come from? Do you feel like, is it because uh, other YouTubers haven't done it in the past and it gives the platform a bad reputation? Is it because of fake news or is it because of a kind of wider social responsibility? I think if you work in history, and this goes back to me doing a degree there, obviously you take courses on how you approach history and how you reference and cite and how you do research. But if you work with history, I think there's a certain 
code maybe that you follow. And part of that is simply showing the information. So that's one part of the story. And then the other part of that is it's just natural to show where the information comes from. I think if you if you have a discussion with somebody on an historical event and you start engaging a very in-depth conversation and you, he, that person says something that you didn't know before, you want to know where did they get that information from just because then you also know where you can read more. And this again gives the other impetus of saying, look, here are the sources that I used. There's a lot more in them if you are interested. So if you... If I have this book here about the war in the Pacific from 1941 to 1945 and I used parts of this chapter in it, but this book is good, legitimately good, and it's worth the money. And if you want to read more about it, this is where you go. So it's on, on the one hand side, it is showing where the information comes from. On the other hand, it's, yeah, it's just sharing with people the the ability I well the ability is maybe a bit tough but sharing with people the means of where they can find more information and it's sort of the resources that they can use and giving academics credit for their work as well yes. do you do you feel like both YouTube and academia are somewhat um, under not under respected but like Undercredited with the service they do for society in terms of like spreading information and research? That's a big one. <laughs> yeah, just so I dropped that in there with your cup of tea. For myself, I would say the service I provide is not is insignificant in the big scheme of things. I do videos about military aviation, I do videos about aircraft, their history, their design what they did during a certain time frame. And I do videos about sort of the operations, the wider operations about it. If you want to know about those elements, then obviously you can look at my videos or you can look at my source list and there you find the books that you could look at. And in that sense, yeah, it is a service maybe for people that want to know more. But beyond that, I think it's also YouTube provides sort of that opportunity for academics and academic sort of uh, resources or products to be disseminated to a wider audience that they couldn't reach before. And this is in a, in a sense where my, my channel also comes in. So I do, I do my own primary research as well, where I go to archives and I go browse through the files, just like any historian would. But I also use, like what you said, um, books written by other academics. And this gives them the ability to show this is ha what has been written go and find out yourself if you're interested about all the stuff that is out there about the events that you've heard about since your youth and might have piqued your interest at some point and might still pique your interest right now on that note it's actually a really good time to talk i think about your audience here so uh you have 136,000 subscribers you have how many of them are patrons on patreon i looked at this number this morning 160 I think somewhere between 160 and 170 for people who don't know Patreon is a way where you can kind of crowdfund or um, give consistent revenue to creators um, based on either a monthly recurring donation or pledge um, and you get perks in exchange or every time they post a video you get um, 
they get a payment and there are again a perks and extra access so it's a really good way to build community and it helps a lot when you're doing history which is something that is a little bit controversial on on youtube you're like please buy my books (laughs) (laughs) and and don't let me get demonetized yeah um and what i think is really interesting about your audience is when you read the comments like when you did the RAF partnership there were so many positive comments these people love and appreciate the way you work and they watch for a long time like their watch time is like well over seven minutes and they very much support you and appreciate the work you do and I was thinking while you were speaking about your access to archives and how so few of these people could ever get to access those archives mm. and how they often tell you personal stories linked to war or linked to aviation um, because I, I don't think they have another outlet to discuss it. And then on top of that, a lot of people, especially a lot of YouTube creators are dyslexic. Mm-hmm. And so they end up making videos for people who couldn't necessarily read a huge amount of primary source information or wouldn't be able to so that they can still disseminate and educate. How do you feel about your audience and do you like what's what's are they a big part of you creating content and continuing the channel i mean my videos are pretty long um i think i'm averaging between 15 to 25 minutes something like this video that's that are coming out are going to be that length and so that that is essentially a episode of any kind of sitcom that you might have so knowing that people watch through that video and watch it often to the end and appreciate sort of the, the work that goes into is a big part in sort of keeping the motivation going as well. And knowing obviously also that you have Patreons that give you money um, in exchange, of course, also for perks, but also just because they genuinely like your content. Perks are a sideshow in that respect. Um, does make it you know, a very rewarding experience and it is fun reading through the comments and i know a lot of youtubers say don't read the comments don't read the comments i still read my comments to the point that i can uh, especially on all new videos that come out and i always say that it's it's part of you create your or you build together with your audience you build a community and that community lives and breathes by its own little bubble rules like it lives in a bubble and it, it has its own rules and i also find it interesting when sort of somebody comes in and doesn't really know how my community is and how how things work and then how they realize that actually wow this you know this channel is not some some random <laughs> random constellation of historical stuff that is just thrown out at the, at the screen but actually there's a lot of work behind it and um the some of the re- most rewarding comments really is just you know People saying, I've been, you know, I had an interest in a, in the same topic for a long time, yet in your video you've showed me stuff that I've never seen before. And obviously, given the wealth of resources that it takes to make some of these videos, the, the research that goes into it and the hours, that, that is sort of the, you know, the really rewarding part as well. Having people come back consistently and looking at the videos, even if... Um, YouTube demonetizes them, which happens sometimes. So it was it was it was an interesting situation when we we ended up working with with you on um, the RAF Battle of Britain piece. 
there was a moment where I was like, oh, we're about to work with <laughs> a German <laughs> to talk about how, like, the Battle of Britain was won. <laughs> like, this is going to be interesting. Um, obviously, you're much more than a German to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, how but, could I be more than a German? <laughs> more than a what? No, but... Um, it was really interesting because I was like, oh, is someone going to say anything? And it didn't actually come from anyone in the RAF at all. Yeah. Someone commented on the video, like, what would, on the Starship channel, like, what would a German know about, mili- about British military aviation history? And so we replied, like, well, <laughs> well, look at Chris's channel. Like, he's a thorough researcher. He worked for Team RAF personnel and he's doing a PhD. He knows a hell of a lot. And then it was having your audience jump in as well. Mm. And this person immediately was like, oh, I didn't realise, thank you for letting me know. But (laughs) your whole audience were like there, like immediately. And I thought it was so nice to see because it was people who were like really supported the integrity and the academic pursuit. Yeah, no, that is true. And I'm also happy with, you know, seeing them take their time to watch and sometimes also critique my videos. So there, there are, of course, as as always, there are sometimes points in 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 videos where I have to choose what kind of topics I talk about. So there, I have this obviously wider topic, but sometimes I have to cut things out. And at that point, sometimes the audience jumps in and says, "Oh, you haven't you know talked about this specific aspect." And at which point I say, "Yeah, that's true, uh, because it didn't fit the wider frame anymore. Hopefully, I can do something in the future." But it's sort of engaging with that on a genuine basis and explaining why certain things haven't made a final cut. That helps. But also then, if somebody has a diverging opinion from you and says, like, look, this is interesting what you've done here and what you're saying in your video, but there's also the argument that can be made that X, Y, Z did A, B, and C. And you can look, for example, at the account by X given to why on the 15th of November, blah, 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 for your information on that. And then you, know, you see a comment like this where somebody takes their time to write a paragraph or even two paragraphs. Um, not exactly, well, it is constructive criticism in a way. And it's, it's sort of springs, or is like a catalyst toward debate. And then just engaging with that and saying, yeah, that's fine. And here's another point that I would make to against that or for that or in support of that even. And here's the reasons why I haven't discussed this in this video and so forth. And when you have those comments, you like those comments, you pin those comments. I'm very happy to do that. And my audience sees it. And I've, I've had comments of people saying like, you know, it's, it's good to see somebody who does history. And when there's somebody in the comments who critiques and provides evidence to support that critique and doesn't just say, oh, you're, this is a stupid video, which happens in every channel, uh, that those kind of comments. But... If there's somebody who comes with, with sort of a, a genuine desire to provide constructive criticism and also provides evidence to support it, then I'm more than happy to engage with it. And if, if I make an vi- error in a video, which, I, which has happened before, it's just a matter of things, I'm very happy of making a second video and saying, I got it wrong. And just explaining why I got it wrong. So there's value in that. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I see. I noticed that with you. You like often interact with people in the comments and you won't let yourself be misquoted, which I really like. If someone says, why do you say this? You'll be like, I said X, like, yes. which is brilliant. But then also you have obviously like a lot of respect for the craft. And if someone's gone through the effort of reading history or like reading different sources and is contesting them in a, an educated way, you're like, yeah, this is what the channel's all about. Yeah. That is what it's all about. It is about... 
disseminating information, broadcasting information, starting a discussion and sharing a passion that I have with people that have a similar passion. Do you get a chance to meet much of your audience? And are they, what type of, are they people who are passionate on the side about military aviation history? Do they work in the industry? Do they have family history? Like what's the... It's a mixed bag. So there's some people that have family history. Recently, I, I actually, one of my patrons told me when I, I told everybody that I am making a video about the C-47, he said, oh, my dad flew those. And then he told me about them and we actually discussed whether it would be possible to use some of the pictures that his dad has in the aircraft on, on the video itself, which I would have been happy to do. The, the only issue then ended up that there were a lot of pictures, but never with that specific aircraft. So that ended up not, not happening, but you know, it would have been fun. Some people in the industry, a lot of people that are just genuinely interested. And yeah, you meet people from all walks of life, people that had family in the Air Force, uh, people that had family or themselves are working in the industry. You have young people that have a passion. You have some engineers, you have some aeronautical engineers, you have, yeah, you have everything. And meeting them, so I'm still relatively small channel, so I don't get caught on the street by suddenly somebody, oh, that's, that's you. Has that happened though? No, it hasn't happened yet. Um, and I'm fine with that as well. It's going to happen soon. It's going to happen at some point. It's fine. We'll, we'll, see. we'll see how it happens. But um, it does start happening at events. So I was, I was filming it at an event recently. And a couple of people came up and said, yeah, hi. Enjoy your work. Thanks very much. Bye. And it always, it does still catch me out. And I, I just, I don't know how to react and uh, the only thing I can say is thank you. And then I sort of stammer and incomprehensively trying to speak in a language that is not my own, trying to make a point of appreciation. It doesn't work out because it still is very weird. But I know I'm thankful for those people. Um, and hopefully sometimes at some point I will get my stuff together and I'm actually able to hold a conversation with them. <laughs> you're a um, quite, I don't know, you're quite a private person. And I'm quite, when I... When I first met you, I was very impressed that you put your face in videos and that you, you're very kind of documentary-led in that sense, very much like a TV documentary, but you still had that avatar. Yeah, high, high phrase indeed. Um, you still had that, that Bismarck avatar and you're now transitioning away from it. Yes. What was the thing that made you shift? In the one, uh, one hand, it's perhaps also a transparency thing. Sort of, I'm putting myself out there, putting my work out there. So, you know, my face is already part of the program, for better or worse, um, probably for worse. But yeah, that that that's just happened. And also, uh, you know, the picture that Ellie took um, from me is a pretty, pretty damn good picture. Photographer on staff, yes. you know, she's great. It just fit perfectly, I think. So at that point, I was like, also because eventually I thought that the avatar, it was kind of fun and it's a nice piece of art. But in the end, maybe I should be a little bit more brand aware, I guess. Um, this is something I still have to learn, which I'm happy to learn, of course. Would you go full time YouTube? I still have. Let's 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 talk after I finish my PhD. <laughs> You're like Jenny. Please, I want a tenure track position. <laughs> uh, I like being busy. You notice, 
and currently the way things are working i have my schedule for sort of my professional life which might be phd but might also be my channel i'm still not quite sure i often ask myself you know what is what is my primary project at the moment is it the phd or is it my channel and it's kind of both and they work in a beautiful symbiosis where one leads to the other and back and somehow um, it works out but it, it it does require a lot of time management and effort on both sides and the final thing i wanted to ask about your channel is what's the one impact you want it to have the one impact would maybe be equipping people with the knowledge and with the with the resources of understanding aviation and military aviation so this is on the one hand side my videos provide this as a service um, to society no um, but uh, you know people giving people information there and then also providing that as a sort of a catalyst because if i think back of in my youth if there wasn't that neighbor who had books on aircraft who took me flying i wouldn't be sitting here right now yeah. at that age i remember i was reading uh, some books on whales and I wanted to be a marine biologist. So that sort of kickstarted a whole new thing that I was way more passionate about in the end than marine biology. So if I can have sort of that effect on the one hand side, on young people maybe, and at the same time also engaging with the, the wider audience, the wider aviation community, and providing a valuable, hopefully a valuable uh, contribution there. You know, there we go. That would be nice. We'll get there, maybe. Brilliant. Well, thank you. We're going to do quick fire questions now. Oh whoop whoop. Your favorite YouTube channel that isn't yours? Primitive technology. And what I do is I literally just click on that video, put it full screen, and I just relax. Okay, your favorite cuisine? I really like Korean. I've lived there for two years and I've never had a bad meal. Phone or text? Text. Your favorite drink? Sparkling water. Your favorite advertising campaign? So there is a campaign that was done in Germany for learning English. There was a quick sketch with a Coast Guard guy and there's a British ship ship that sends out an SOS and they say, yo, we're sinking and he responds, what are you thinking about? The dream brand to work with. I mean, Bendix would be pretty cool. Then any sort of air force that is out there. What's your next holiday destination? Switzerland, most likely, but it's not holiday. It's, it's filming and holiday. Your favorite social network? I'm going to call my Patreons my social network. Least favorite? I'm not a big Facebooker. The worst fad on YouTube ever. I've never really got behind the whole React thing. I understand the appeal. It never did it for me. I just don't understand it. If you could be any, any animal, what would you be? Maybe a condor. I've recently saw condors. That was pretty awesome. Next video you're working on? Two videos that we recently shot in the RAF Museum. So there's the Albatross and the RE8. And then there was a video coming up on the American torpedo bomber, a German jet, and gun sights. If money were no object, what would be the dream video? An access to no object. Yeah. What would be the dream video to make? A big, massive tour of Canada and the US going from one 
aviation museum to the other. Last question, it's pretty dark. When was the last time you cried? Two weeks ago, um, I watched a movie that always makes me cry. Empire of the Sun, have you ever seen that? Oh, you should watch it. Yeah, actually, first you read the book. I had to walk, uh, read the book in English school, uh, in English language class at school. And then later on I watched the movie. And that's the one movie that always makes me cry. That's awesome. You survived. I survived. Just about. <laughs> do you want to do the outro? Yeah. We, we're still an outro. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for watching the Creative Podcast with Chris, with Bismarck. Um, he's actually going to sign and give away this camera. It's a vintage camera. It probably doesn't work, so don't get overexcited. The mechanism still works. The mechanism works. So if you enjoy doing this. <laughs> <laughs> feel free to comment in the bottom about something interesting that you think he said and we will choose a winner thanks for being so open and going into parts of your life you don't normally go into thanks for having me and talking about academic stuff which i actually quite like it's very different to what you might usually expect from these videos yeah <laughs> i like that though it's good in two weeks we have an industry podcast and then we'll go back to create one two weeks after that but yeah it's been an utter joy it has. Thank you very much. Have a lovely day. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>